Can we thank God? Just give him a clap offering. I love that. Clap offering. And thank you, Van. And uh, Dr. Steven, can you come up here for a second? I didn't realize, but, you know, I'm 100% Italian. I've got another Italian brother here. Show him this shirt, bro. This is awesome. This is a brother from another mother, but he's also Italian. Did you know that? Isn't that awesome? Italian. Awesome. We love you, bro. Thank you. Okay, so uh, we're on page seven of your message notes. Whoa, page seven of your message notes. And uh, wrong title got in there. If you would just cross out that title uh, and put face to feet, face to feet, face to feet. We're talking about how to live face to face how we prioritize facing God and then face others with the Jesus vision and seeing all through the eyes of Christ. That's the whole theme of tonight's and this night's, these evenings talk. So face defeat. And uh, I've got a confession to make. Brian made a confession about his sports allegiance. Uh, I am part of the Raider Nation. Yeah, amen. Don't judge. Don't judge. See, judgment's coming. So I was actually in the Oakland Coliseum. My father had a, a poultry business, P-O-U-L-T-R-Y business, uh, right next to the Oakland Coliseum. And so we had season tickets. I was in there when Daryl LaMonica was throwing the ball, Ken Stabler, when John Madden was walking the sidelines. I was in the Raider Stadium when it was safe for a kid to go to the Raider Stadium. <laughs> so you can imagine my excitement because it had been 40 years And two years ago, a man moved in our church, a very successful uh, attorney, very powerful attorney, and he bought season tickets for the beginning. He he emailed me, he was in my men's group, and he said, hey, any game, any game you want to go to, I'm all in. Did you are my guests? I'm like, oh my gosh. As a matter of fact, for their last season coming up, he told me every game, every home game, you got a seat next to me. I'm like, thank you, Lord. This is awesome. So um, I picked one game. They were playing the uh, Denver Donkeys. I'm sorry, Denver Broncos. Um, it had been 40 years since I'd been in that stadium. And, uh, and uh, it was a Sunday game. It was after church. It was a Sunday night game, nationally televised. And uh, I was on the curb with my wife, Ann, and another friend of mine, Mike. And he's like, you're going to the Raiders game? He goes, aren't you scared? And I kid you not, right as I'm going, oh, I'm not scared, this Mercedes comes screaming down the street, comes to a halt. My friend jumps out of the car. He is dressed in silver and black, he's got a Derek Carr jersey, he's painted face, old school helmet. I even got a picture of it. Look at this. Uh, do we have a picture of it? <laughs> wow, that was a, I'm sorry about that. Uh, he, and he just goes, come on. And I turned to my wife, I'm like, pray for me, pray for me. And so we went, and here's what happened. I entered into the most um, passionate worship service I've ever experienced. I kid you not, in 40 years, in 40 years. What I saw there was, I mean, we were Pentecostal. We were raising our hands. We were screaming like loud, like mad. We say in our church, circles are better than rows. Like, oh, there we go. Wow, look at that. There's my buddy. Look at that. I actually took selfies with Raider fans. This guy actually, next, the week following this game, Sports Illustrated did a whole display on Raiders fans, and this guy made it in the magazine. Go to the next one. Is there a next one? There we go. Look at that. Grown adults, my friends. Okay, go to the face-to-face. I don't want us looking at that, okay? There was a complete worship service. I kid you not, there was Raider liturgy. There was a Raider prelude. 
There were raider songs sung. There was raider fellowship. It was raider worship. We screamed. We were in groups. My small group, we were just, we were tight. We were encouraging each other. Uh, there was raider language. Most of it was expletives, but it was raider language nonetheless. We have our church language, right? Christianese. There was raider ease going on. We jumped throughout the game. I stood on my feet the whole game. It was unbelievable. We talked back. To the players, we talk back to the coach, we talk back to the officials, and no one thought that behavior was out of line. That was the norm. We were called fans. But if you transfer passion like that into the church, somehow we're called fanatics. As a matter of fact, my friend in church is never that expressive. See, passion's a big deal in America. I actually Googled it before I came up here. Amazon.com features 61,829 books with passion in the title. There's a passion for everything. I found a book, a passion for mushrooms, a passion for needlepoint, a passion for pizza. I can get behind that one. And if you're feeling this especially passionate, uh, you can purchase the number one bestseller amongst hot tub enthusiasts. I kid you not, there's a book, A Passion for Steam. A Passion for Steam. Give me a break. It's almost as if we think it's appropriate to get excited or to be enthusiastic and have passion for anything in life except for God, except for Jesus. See, when it comes to following Christ, Here's the question I want to lay out before you. And I don't equate passion only with what I experienced in the Raider Stadium. But I do want to ask this question. When it comes to following Jesus, how much passion is appropriate? When it came to singing just now, how much passion is called for? When you leave the hill and go back to work, in worship through the way you live, worship through the way you function, worship through the way you love, worship through the way you obey the laws of our land, whatever it is, how much passion is appropriate when it comes to following Jesus? Dallas Willard in his book, um, The Spirit of the Disciplines, he wrote this like 30 years ago, I think it's more appropriate today. He said, the world can no longer be left to mere diplomats, politicians, and business leaders. They've done the best they could, no doubt. But Willard said in the late 80s, this is a time and an age for spiritual heroes, a time for men and women to be heroic in faith, in spiritual character, in power. The greatest danger of the Christian church today, Willard said, is that of pitching its message too low. What fuels passion? What does it look like? Are we just talking about an hour a week? What does it mean to be passionate 24-7? What does it mean to be fueled by a passion for Jesus? What motivates that? How do we live that? I'm so glad you're asking these questions. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 12, and let's look face to feet at this amazing woman who in her life has displayed uh, great passion for the Savior, 
but has the time to uh, fully display that in this story. Uh, we're stepping into the fourth biography of Jesus, the Gospel of John, and, and the last week of Jesus' life was a very important to the, God, to the John, the Gospel writer, and so he devotes half of his whole biography to the last week of Jesus' life. The last week of his life, we get really slow because John doesn't want us to miss the point. And we're here in the final week of Jesus' life. Uh, the cross is a little less than a week away. It's days away. Jesus is in Bethany, which is just over the hill from Jerusalem. It's before the triumphal entry and before he heads into Jerusalem. And no one there knows he's marching to his death. Only Christ does. He's predicted it, but they, they don't know. And at this banquet, it's actually a thank you banquet. In the room is Simon who we hear from uh, Matthew, another biographer, is an ex-leper. We talked about lepers last week. Jesus healed multiple lepers, so Simon's there, an ex-leper. At the dinner table with Jesus is Lazarus, who was an ex-dead guy, right? Jesus had a lot of exes, okay? And they're all there at the table. By the way, you, you're an ex, too, if you identify as a Christian, right? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, he lists, a bunch of sins and sinful habits. And I love this. To this Corinthian church, he says, such were some of you. My friends, let us never forget, but by the grace of God, where we would be. So these, these people are throwing a banquet. It's the home of Mary and Martha, right? And uh, there's a disciples there, Mary's there, Martha's there. It's a thank you party for Jesus. And the meal gets interrupted by Mary. And let's pick it up right there. What we're going to learn, and let me just do one more, one more statement before we jump in. What Mary's going to do is uh, actually, we're going to see a, a beautiful, passionate act of worship, okay? Now we'll pick it up and turn to page eight, and let's see some things face to feet with passionate followers and what creates passion, what it looks like, okay? Here's the first. Followers who live face to feet abandon their pride, abandon their pride. At some point... We all have a limit and ask the question, in my vertical relationship with God, how does this come across horizontally, right? And that view, the over-introspective look at ourselves is what the Bible calls pride and over-concern for ourselves. You're not going to see that in Mary. Here we go. You ready? Are you ready? All right. I love that. Six days before the Passover, this would be Saturday. Actually, this would be the very last Sabbath that Jesus ever experienced. The next one, he'd be uh, in the grave or resurrected, right? He'd be alive, but his body would be in a tomb. This is actually the last Sabbath that God would require on earth. Now, it's still experienced, but we don't need the Sabbath anymore as new covenant people. This is it. It's the very last Sabbath, okay? And we're at the end of it. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom, uh, uh, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner is given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, of course. That's what Martha does. And Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with them. Uh, in that day, you would lean. There's no chairs. You would lean against the table in one arm. You'd eat with a hand, and your feet would be outward. Okay? You want me to model that on the table here? No. Okay, we're good. Okay. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard an expensive pure perfume. Pure nard was a spice that was exported in to Israel. It wasn't indigenous to Israel. It came from the Himalayan mountains. Very expensive. 
Uh, by Judas's statement, which we'll see in a minute, he estimated it could have been sold for uh, 300 denarii, which is uh, 300 days wages. I just did the math, and based on what um, Albert told me his son makes at Chick-fil-A, okay, 15 bucks an hour, I did the math. Uh, not Albert, sorry. What <laughs> Brian told me his son uh, made at Chick-fil-A, 300 days, eight-hour days, $36,000, $15 an hour. $36,000. That's costly by today's. This was extravagant, my friends. Easily the most valuable possession that Mary, Martha, Lazarus owned. Possibly, some commentators said it was their financial security. Uh, we don't know that they were married. Uh, spouses are never mentioned with these three. This could have been their 401k. This could have been her pension. And what does she do? Look what it says. She poured it on Jesus' feet. And she wiped his feet with her hair. In that culture, the religious culture, the rabbis taught that when a woman unbound her hair, it was a way of showing openness, love, and intimacy. The intimacy reserved only for the most intimate family members, also used by the prostitutes of the day. This was awkward for others in the room. There was tension in the room. It's awkward even saying that in this room. Mary was passionate but not romantic. This was a passionate display of love and affection. Mary was so incredulous, according to Mark's account, another biographer, in Mark 14.5, it says the other guests rebuked her harshly. That, friends, is an understatement because in the original language, the harshly is, is the term, uh, the, the roar of an animal. So let's enter the room, and all of a sudden, Mary is pouring out her affection at the feet of Jesus and in the room, something is happening to the other religious people. It's so outrageous. It's so shameful. Pretty much the whole room is yelling at her. Except Jesus. See, our actions, my friends, I want you to know, make a statement. Our lives make a statement when it comes to Jesus. All of our life does. I really believe our theology impacts our biology. And our biology is a statement about our theology. What I do is a statement of who I serve. So what's Mary saying about Jesus? By breaking the box open, she's saying to Jesus, I'm gonna follow you no matter what the cost. Pouring it on Jesus' feet, she's saying, I'm laying down my rights. There's nothing you can't ask of me. I'll go anywhere for you. With her hair, she's saying, Jesus, I'm not just giving you everything I have. That's the alabaster jar. With her hair, she's saying, I'm giving you everything I am. Stick with me, okay? Are you with me? I want to ask a question I don't think you're expecting. What was it about Jesus 
that pulled that kind of complete surrender and complete abandonment in Mary. I don't want to ask you, are you giving all you are? Do you not care what people think? I don't want to heap a burden on your shoulder like that. I want to invite you to consider what was it that she saw in Jesus that would make her break up a party and be the scorn of the room and pour herself completely out on Jesus. Do you know the hymn, Take My Life? I love these lyrics in there. It says, take my will and make it thine. It will be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be your royal throne. Think about that. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at your feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever, only, all for thee. This is what Mary's doing. See, my friends, what I'm learning from Mary is that worship, and I don't mean just singing for an hour, all of life is worship, but worship is worth-ship. Worship is worth-ship. My obedience, loving the way God calls me to love, living within the boundaries and lanes God calls me to live in, even when I don't understand it, that, that skit this morning, it spoke, I know it's a children's skit, it spoke so much to me about obeying even when I don't understand. It is a statement of worth saying, Jesus, you're worth it. Mary knew something I don't even know because she could empty her life savings. She could empty her reputation. She could be, give Jesus everything, and it was worth it. Even when it feels in the room like it was a waste. I was and am learning and getting caught up in this because it's such a beautiful motive for obedience. It goes so far, much farther than legalism. Jesus, you're so worth it. You're so worth it. it, it you know, when, when Brian talked about this morning, duty versus delight, it was the delight of Jesus that caused this outpouring of passion in Mary. So I was in Whole Foods a couple weeks ago and thinking about this. And uh, I was in the, I always go through the quick check lane at Whole Foods because I don't get a lot there. And, and uh, as I was going through, uh, there was a new checker that was helping me. And she was having a hard time. And most of the people in the quick check lane, 15 items or less, uh, are there because they want to get out. And as she was trying to read my card and entering it wrong and read my card and enter it wrong, in my mind was what we're talking about here. And going, you know what, Jesus, just breathing and saying, help me to treat her like you would treat her. She was obviously concerned. The way I treat her, Jesus, is a statement to you. You're worth it. You're worth the three minutes longer for me. She kept apologizing. I'm like, hey, we're good. I was just getting one little thing of gelato. And she was getting it wrong getting it wrong. I'm so sorry. It's my second day. We're good. 
getting it wrong. People are like grunting. We're good. And then she finally got it right, and off I went. It was such a beautiful motive that had a horizontal impact on people. You're worth it. You're worth it. The first thing we learn about Mary, passionate followers of Christ abandon their pride. They're not really concerned of what their obedience looks like to other people. And look what the scripture says. The house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. Verse three. In other words, it wasn't just a dab. This was like a middle schooler wearing Axe body spray. (laughs) This was so much, it went out into the whole room. She poured it all out for Jesus. The whole room knew it. See, in those days, when you intended an event, um, you would have a foot washer, and then the host would usually dab you with some sort of fragrance or oil. It was actually a courtesy because they didn't have showers and, and they didn't have like cleanliness standards like we do. I, I actually today went for a run right before lunch and we were meeting some people at lunch and I told uh, my family like, I'll meet you at lunch and I, I came in all sweaty. I, I, I kind of don't care really about, I, I took a shower before tonight, but, uh, but uh, for lunch I was, I was sweaty and, and there was some concern amongst some family members. I'm not gonna single anyone out. But in that day, the host would usually put some perfume on you to protect you from smelling badly with the other people. Mary poured her whole alabaster, it wasn't like that, but she poured her whole alabaster jar on Jesus. The second thing I learned about her is this. Followers of Jesus give lavishly. Give lavishly. Mary's heart is overflowing and the alabaster jar is just a metaphor for what's going on in her heart. I can't give you enough of my affection, Jesus. It's just a metaphor for intimacy and what what it looks like. And others would call it sacrifice and costly. Not Mary. Because the motive was love. It's not costly when you're in love. Uh, you've seen our youngest daughter. She's, um, I told you last night, came from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And um, we weren't that family that always wanted to adopt. Certainly not internationally. We have some work uh, as a church community going on in the DRC. And uh, on one of my trips, my uh, third daughter met Jojo. Uh, She was just a little over two. And God literally just said to us, here you go. You have four awesome daughters. Here's a fifth. And we had no idea the cost of going through that adoption, nor did we have any idea. And this is, I'm not saying this to be, this is not heroic. If anyone's heroic, it's our fifth daughter to be transplanted from her village into our home. She's the hero of the story. But um, it, it, it cost us, like any act of obedience, right? Uh, The cost is way greater than you ever anticipated, and the benefit is way better than you could ever imagine. That's obedience, my friends. 
Well, after she came to us, nine-month process and tons of work, and, and in her case, actually, it went all the way up to the State Department, and the Secretary of State had to sign her case uh, for the United States for her to get to us. It was a miracle. Um, so I'm at a friend's house who was with me on the initial trip when we met JoJo. Do you understand what we're doing? JoJo's on my side, and my friend uh, is the typical Silicon Valley guy, made it big in tech, and it, this trip to the Congo wrecked him in the best way possible. He started a nonprofit, and there's great work going on, and, and we're talking about that, and he had Congo pictures all, all in his entryway, and I was looking at him, holding my daughter's hand, I'm like, man, Mike, look at these Congo pictures. This is like six years ago. I'm like, you've really drunk the Kool-Aid here. And he laughed at me, he looked at me, because I'm holding my daughter's hand. He's like, I drank the Kool-Aid? <laughs> and he just pointed to JoJo. It never dawned on me, I could speak for my wife, that we paid a price. Not once since we had her. Because that's what love is. It's affection poured out. And that's what Mary's doing. Let's jump into the story in verse 4. The fragrant aroma of the room, that's where we left this story, is invaded now by the toxic words of Judas. Verse 4, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, by the way, that's always how Judas is described in the biographies, the Gospels of Jesus, the one who betrayed Christ. He objected. Now, these are the first recorded words of Judas Iscariot in the Gospels. First time we hear his words. Why wasn't this perfume sold and money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. You've heard that before. Aren't you getting a little too into this, Christianity? Why would you read your Bible every day? Why go to a prayer meeting? Why do you give that much money away to the church? Judas is just totally going off. He's entering this. He didn't say this, verse 6, because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. Now, Judas led the attack, but Matthew, in his account, in verse 26, verse 8, says all the other disciples joined Judas in the criticism. So it gets worse now. Mary, she knew the crowd, but now the disciples are getting on her. It says in Matthew 26, 8, but the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? Waste? It is how the outside culture sees passionate followers of Christ. What a waste. I think of that when I think of the leadership of so many Christian organizations and how people view them and how they could do so many amazing things. I'm telling you, the leadership of Mount Hermon, Mike, Jeremy, the whole team, I go, man, I am so thankful. Look at me, everybody, that they've wasted their life to employ their leadership to this organization. They could be doing so much outside, but they've heard the call and are pouring themselves into this place. They're just being pragmatic and sensible in the room. See, this money could have benefited many poor families, but instead it was wasted on Jesus. The bottom line for G Judas was this. Jesus isn't worth it. 
See, friends, all of worship is worthship. And what Judas is doing is exposing his heart and saying, Jesus isn't worth it. For 300 denarii, he would rob Jesus of the gift of Mary's love. But later, he would sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Everybody, a quarter of the cost. He would sell out Jesus. Jesus wasn't worth 300 days' wages. I'll sell him for 30. Judas is saying to Mary, get a sense of proportion. Loving Jesus is one thing, but are you taking this a little too far? John's making a statement. This, this biography is making a clear statement in this story. Judas is following Jesus for how it profits him. Mary is following Jesus in spite of what it costs her. Do you understand the difference? Judas is following Jesus for how it profits him. Mary is following Jesus in spite of what it costs her. Two statements of worth. Both are worshiping. One is passionate for the right reasons. One is in it all for themselves. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. I love that. And then he said to the reader, if you want religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Salvation is free. We'll talk about this tomorrow night. If you're here and you don't identify as a follower of Jesus Christ, first of all, I hope you felt so welcome here. You do not need to believe in order to belong. You are so welcome here. And Jesus offers you and every one of us the free gift of eternal life. But as we'll see on our final night, following and becoming like Christ, uh, once you receive that free gift, it is costly. And Mary is just passionate and saying to Jesus, whatever the cost. So if I can ask a question of those who identify as followers of Christ, here's my question. How valuable is that, that Christ to you? Okay, take money off the table what about in your time? What about in your reputation? What is your statement of worship to Christ? I'm not saying this to judge us. Please, that's not my way. There is no condemnation for all of us who are in Christ Jesus. I am just asking the question because we're away from our environment and our guard has come down and, and we are opening ourselves up to the spirit realm and the kingdom of God and these kind of questions should be asked and contemplated. How much of Christ do we really want to be like? What we learn from Mary is this, passionate followers of Christ, you're going to have to abandon your pride. At some point, you're going to have to care more about your reputation in the heavenlies than your reputation on earth. And many care more about the earthly and turn away from the passion or turn it down. Passionate followers of Christ, you're going to have to give lavishly. It's going to cost you. But it won't feel like a cost because you're so enamored with who Jesus is. And you too will be saying, take my life, my Lord, I pour. At your feet, my treasures store. Lastly, what I want to say, 
Followers of Jesus who live passionately face to feet are motivated by the cross, are motivated by the cross. Here's what I want you to know. There's always so much more than meets the eye when it comes to your obedience and our obedience. So much more than meets the eye when it comes to our worship. Even as we are singing here, can you imagine? I mean, we just see it from this experience and it's unbelievable how the band is leading us into the presence of God. Can you imagine how heaven, what they experienced to see all of us gathered just singing to God? There is so much more on the line in your obedience. I told you last night, we don't sin in a vacuum. I told you about how our sin has horizontal impact. My friends, we don't obey in a vacuum either. Our obedience also has horizontal impact. So the Friday night, and I am not embellishing any story this whole week at all. This is true stuff. The Friday night after the Sunday, I was in Whole Foods. My wife and I go on a date in our favorite restaurant. If you're ever in Redwood City, you have the freedom to treat me to this restaurant. It's called Vesta, V-E-S-T-A, gourmet pizza. It's the rage in Redwood City. And, and I'm not like you. I envy you. I work with followers of Christ. It is my profession. I don't get to rub shoulders like you do with primarily unchurched people. And so we have to go, uh, Ann and I, to uh, regular people and regular uh, places of business where we build relationships. I've been building a relationship with the manager at Vesta. And uh, by his own admission, he's on a journey but far from Jesus. Doesn't see him as practical. Doesn't think Jesus would love and accept him. And through our going to Vesta, we're building a relationship. Well, we're there the Friday night after that Sunday and um, it's busy, and he's always busy because he's managing the whole restaurant. And I thanked him for his service, and he grabbed me. He goes, hey. He said, I saw you last Sunday. I said, what? He goes, I saw you in the checkout line at Whole Foods. I go, what? He goes, I was watching. He knows I am. He doesn't know I'm a pastor, but he knows I am a follower of Christ. And he said this. I saw how you treated that woman. So that was pretty cool, the way you had patience with that checker. Good job. And then we went. I had no idea the man that uh, God has put me in relationship with, that I'm praying I play some small part in him seeing Jesus differently, that that checkout line was actually a mission field. I thought it was all about me and the checker, but God gave me the strength because the man that I'm in relationship with and endeavoring to influence for Christ was watching without me even knowing it. I just thank God for the strength that he gave me that night to be obedient while I was being processed through Whole Foods. See, there's so much more than meets the eye. Uh, they're motivated by the cross. Let's look at verse 7. Let's look at this. And let's see how Jesus frames this and deals with Mary. Look what he says. I'm so grateful Jesus does this. The first words out of his mouth are in defense of a passionate follower of Jesus. Leave her alone, which in the Greek is shut your pie hole. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but it's the same kind of force without the, the um, offense. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. Now look what he says. It was intended. 
Uh, Brian talked about Providence two days ago. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. See, there's so much more going on than meets the eye. It was a lavish gift that they thought would be wasted in one night that they thought Jesus couldn't take with him. But could he? Matthew says in this account that Mary started by pouring oil over his head. This John account, he only captures it going on his feet in the process of her washing his feet. But you put the whole biographies together and what we learn is she drenched him with this alabaster jar of perfume. The next day, he would be triumphantly going into Israel and Jerusalem, and people would be just hailing him, and he'd go right into the temple and start turning over tables after the triumphal entry. And people were hating him. And I wonder in that process, in that next day, and then the week following as he began to be tried and beaten and ripped out his beard and spit upon. I wonder if there wasn't the scent of the perfume that Mary poured over him and Jesus would just go, so worth it. Because she's a glimpse of what I'm gonna have for all eternity going through this hell of the crucifixion. Jesus defended her, and Mary had no idea the cross was coming, but the aroma that that gave off would remind Jesus in the week to come, she loves me, I love her, I love these people. They've gotten in way over their head in sin, and they can't rescue themselves. This is why I'm doing it. When you worship, you give off an aroma into the heavenlies. Through your singing and through your obedience when you're not singing. You know, it's interesting to me, and I put this on page eight, every time this Mary is mentioned, she's the only person Jesus let go to her feet, his feet. And in that process, in Luke 10, she was at his feet when he was teaching, she was the learner. In John 11, she was at his feet as Jesus died, she was the grieving one. This third time, she's worshiping, and in that process, I believe God put something in her uh, where she didn't fully understand it, but Jesus was saying, look what he said, um, she has saved this perfume. Uh, it was saved for the day of my burial. In essence, Mary was saying, I don't fully understand this, but through my life, I learned enough about you. You raised my brother to, from the dead, and the only reason you could do that was by going to death yourself. You interrupted my funeral because one day you'd have your own. I am so grateful for you, Jesus. I'm pouring out who I am for you. So much more than meets the eye. So as we close, I want to ask you again the question I started with. What was it that Mary saw in the face of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, 
in the way Jesus interacted with her. It caused her this kind of passion. And when you think of passion, again, no condemnation, what is it that's stifling yours? Your obedience. Your willingness to live for him. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this woman. I thank you so much for your desire to raise up, even from this conference, passionate followers of you. I'm so sorry, Lord, for myself and confess the way that I have been about how does this come across or uh, how's the band playing or where are we at time? I'm so sorry that I've come across living my life. What are others gonna think? Lord, would you take tonight your hands and lift our chins up into your presence so we can see your face, seek your face, and see in you who you really are so that we can give ourselves and abandon to you. I'm not asking us to try harder. I'm asking us uh, Lord, to posture ourselves before you and you reveal yourself. This week, reveal yourself to us in a whole new, fresh way. And may we leave this hill, yes, having great memories, yes, eating great food, yes, resting. But may we leave this hill fueled by you and in gratitude, living passionately for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Everyone said, amen.